Welcome to the Coach and Doc podcast, hosted by Coach Chris Cutcliffe and Dr. Hunter Taylor. Our mission is to bring you insight from the best of the best in the coaching profession. If you'd like to learn more about the work we do at Coach and Doc, please visit our website, www.coachanddoc.com. Thank you so much for joining us on the Coach and Doc podcast. Our next guest is Dr. Eric Mays, professor at the University of Arkansas and founding director of Arkansas's Academy for Educational Equity. Dr. Mays came to Arkansas from Johns Hopkins University, where he was on the faculty in their School of Education and also served as an assistant coach on the football team. Doc is also a proud Michigan man. He's a native of the state who walked onto the Wolverine football team and eventually became captain of the 1997 national championship team. But even with all of his professional accolades, I know he's most proud of his roles as husband, father, and mentor to many. Doc Mays, welcome to the podcast. Hey, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Perfect. Well, we're going to jump right in. Uh, so my opening statement gave some info about you, uh, but I know there's actually a lot more to your story. And so would you mind kind of telling our listeners how and why you got into the work you're doing now, especially kind of like just looking at your post-grad career into your professional career? Yeah, not a problem. So born in a small town in Michigan, Benton Harbor, Michigan, uh, Benton Harbor. And so my mom and dad uh, were sharecroppers. And um, I grew up uh, in a place where the odds were much more unlikely that I would become uh, a cautionary tale of the streets uh, than go on to graduate uh, from a place like Harvard or Howard or the University of Michigan. Uh, and that is, um, and it's because of the support that I was given. I demonstrated athletic prowess early, and so I was coached uh, for success, uh, more so than a lot of my peers who weren't in the athletics or in the sports. Um, and so teachers stood in the gap for me, coaches stood in the gap for me, community folks stood in the gap for me. Um, and as a result, I had opportunities that my friends didn't. Um, and specifically via education. Education opened up the world for me. Before I took my first uh, recruiting trip, I had never been on a plane before. I had never been to a state that didn't touch Michigan. And so imagine you know, what that experience was, a 17, 18-year-old kid from a small town with one high school, one hospital. Uh, the hospital is now closed. Um, getting on a plane uh, in 1993 um, and going to Tennessee and, and, and having, his, uh, having you know, his whole uh, world and concept of the world uh, expanded. And yeah. so uh, I would later, you know, I would, I would uh, go to Xavier University, uh, even though I had athletic scholarships, I turned them all down to go to Xavier um, because I wanted to go pre-med um, psychology. And Xavier put more black students in a medical school than any other school in the country. And so that's where I wanted to go. I went to Xavier. I was homesick. Uh, again, before that flight, six, seven months before that, I had never been uh, that far away from home. And so I applied to the hometown schools, Michigan State and Michigan, uh, both of those, believe it or not. And the Spartans just so happened to misplace my... Uh, my application or something in my application and asked me to send it again. Michigan, 
those <laughs> folks were able to keep track of everything. And they called and they let me know I was admitted. And so I go to Michigan. I have a wonderful experience. Um, I'm sitting in the stands. Cordell Stewart throws a Hail Mary in oh, yeah. the corner of the end zone um, to Michael Westbrook. And they beat Michigan on the last play. And I'm in the stands, and I say to myself, if I was on the field, I knew I would have been able to do something. You know, I hoped I would have been able to do something to make a difference. Four years later, I walk onto that team. Uh, I'm at the White House uh, presenting the president uh, with a uh, Michigan jersey and declaring him an honorary Michigan man. And so that experience, and then after that, I would go um, and get a PhD at Howard. I would uh, work in Africa and uh, South America. Uh, and those experiences were because people stood in a gap for me, coaches, players, community folks, uh, in addition to my parents, to give me opportunities and coach me for success. And so every job I've taken, I've taken uh, a job that would provide me an opportunity to support and provide the same kind of uh, scaffolds that were given to me to succeed, the same kind of coaching that was given to me to succeed. I've given that to other people. And so um, the organizations may have changed, but the work at the core of the work is uh, building bridges, creating more opportunities uh, for folks who normally wouldn't have those opportunities. Love it. That's awesome. So Dr. Mays, I know, Sports and education are, are two big, you know, important things in your life and, and really the role that they kind of play together. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what those two things did for you as a young person. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. So sports have tremendous value outside of NBA, NFL, uh, MLB uh, contracts. Sports provide an opportunity for people to really grow and develop if it's in the right environment or if they're surrounded by the right kind of coaches. And so one of the things that football provided me, it provided me really, I call it a testing ground. It allowed me to see what I was made of, see what I was working with. Like, so I had to, think, you know, the idea that the, the eye in the sky doesn't lie. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, you can give every excuse you want, but when they roll that tape and they play it, it's pretty clear to everybody that knows what you should have done, what should have happened, all right? And so that kind of accountability, there are few places in the world, few jobs in the world where people are held to, to that level of accountability um, and that level of transparency. And so I think in that testing ground that sports provided for me, it also provided an a, a developmental um, area or, or, or grounds as well, in the sense that being coached for improvement, learning how to take coaching, working with somebody who cares about you, who wants you to grow and develop, that only, if it's genuine, it can only transfer to other areas of your life. And so for me, um, sports allowed me to develop uh, or, or, or to see the resilience and then to cultivate the resilience. And then it allowed me a place where I could actually demonstrate my toughness um, and then say to myself, like, I am that tough. And so I used that many a times. When I was working on my PhD at Howard, um, it was tough because a lot of uh, my classmates had been people that had majored in psychology, undergrad, masters, um, had 
done internships and externships. Um, you know, they asked me, you know, well, what did you major in undergrad? Well, I majored in football, you know. Um, but <laughs> in all honesty, uh, yeah. pretty close, close to it. But I said it all to say, um, because of football, I was able to work through some of those difficult times of not having that prior experience that they had in their previous undergraduate uh, studies. I was able to get through those late nights, those all-nighters, because I kept saying to myself, I walked on at Michigan. There's no way I'm not finishing this dissertation. All right. And so sports or athletics and academics, they were springboards for me. Like I said, education opened up the world for me and football gave me the discipline, the resilience to be able to fight um, and take advantage of those opportunities that education opened up for me. That's perfect. More people need to hear you say that because right now, especially uh, when we're kind of looking at what's essential, you know, in this type of setting, uh, where we're trying to reduce things in school districts, um, and, I, and we completely, we've had this conversation a bunch just in different environments of how tough that is. But yeah, I mean, you nailed it with what sports, with being on a team, what you learn, how important that is to personal development. So that was perfectly said. Um, we want to get into now what you're doing uh, at the academy. And so I know that the academy that you lead on the campus of Arkansas trains educators to teach with an equity lens. So what does that mean? That's a great question, Hunter. So equity, a lot of folks kind of debate, define equity differently. So equity understands that there's been inequality, all right, because of racism, discrimination, redlining, that there's been inequality that exists. And so equity says we have to invest additional resources in their in under-resourced under communities and schools because of decades and decades and decades of underinvestment, right? And so equity, uh, so, so that's one aspect of equity, the idea of providing additional resources to those under-resourced communities. But it also, uh, from our perspective at the academy, it means training teachers to have a lens to understand the historical drivers that led to the status quo. Because a lot of times people look at education and they're looking at the outcomes, like how, why does that school have such a low graduation rate? Why does that school have such low ACT or SAT scores? Why does that school have such high dropout rates? Um, why are the GPAs so low for the students at that school? And without understanding the historical underpinnings that lead to those outcomes, teachers often can develop a deficit perspective. Rather than saying that there are structural barriers that got us there, or that there are things that we need to change structurally, there, there's, there's often this idea that these outcomes are a result of student deficits. And so it's important that, that that's addressed and given teachers the tools to be able to understand what those historical drivers are that led to inequality and then giving them, uh, so, so one, giving them a historical perspective and then given, and so the tools are a historical perspective and strategies and approaches to help 
work in those under-resourced communities to ultimately help those children actualize their potential. So. That's awesome. So, so Dr. Mays, kind of building on that, what is something that you wish more coaches on the high school and college levels were trained in as they go about leading the young men and women that are part of their programs? Yeah, so I think coaches would benefit from understanding uh, the unique challenges uh, that African-American athletes in particular, uh, if we're talking football players, deal with outside of the bubble, which we may call the football building or the stadium uh, or the arena. Like, what is that like? And so providing uh, supports for them around in that area um, would, be, would be important because it, it's more than just saying, I love you and I care about you as your coach, you know, um, and which could be true. But there are people that don't love you and don't care about you. And so how can I understand and give you support so that you can help navigate through that um, is one. But I think they're also understanding um, so the cultural difference that exists for a lot of players coming from different environments and then they get to schools um, that are completely culturally different um, than the environment they come from. And maybe understanding how much of a challenge that is. Like it is literally a different world. I remember at University of Michigan um, when they had bagels. Um, and so after we had our morning workout, they gave us, you know, bagels and cream cheese. Some of us had never had bagels and cream cheese. And we're like, what is this? It's not a donut. <laughs> you know, it's just, it looks like a donut, but it's not, you know, we laugh yeah. now because it's 25, yeah. 30, you know, five yeah. years later. But imagine that, you know, so we're like, man, we're not eating this. You know, and they're telling us, oh, this is common, you know, coffee. We don't go to coffee houses. And so just something like that um, helps. But I would say also universally, probably um, helping um, transfer the skills from athletics to the real world is another one that would be really helpful for coaches to know more about like, hey, these are the opportunities. Uh, these are some of the options, how you can take the skills that you learn in athletics and transform those to uh, actual like careers. Because oftentimes at the collegiate level, it's, hey, just get this degree and you'll have, and, you know, you don't have to worry about a thing if you're coming from a really prestigious school. Um, you know, some of these top tier uh, public uh, schools uh, in particular, because they're the, uh, of the power five. Uh, but I think in, in this competitive uh, marketplace, given drilling down a little more saying, hey, this is what that looks like. At the high school level, I think it's also um, it's similar, just saying, hey, I want you to take advantage of this university, but also want you to really look to see what opportunities um, are at this place for you outside of uh, you know, athletics. That's great. We're going to have to have a part two because I know we could talk more about this in detail, uh, but we want to keep you on track uh, for this episode. And so we kind of want to get into the superficial stuff too. We That's want to cool. talk about 1997. Let's okay. do it. Let's do it. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, I've known you a couple of years now. I've never heard you talk about that team. So if, if you would, just talk about what made that group so special. Man, um, man. We, so uh, I have to be honest and say we had the best 
football player in America on our team. <laughs> like that's clear. Like that. Make, make no mistake. <laughs> make make no mistake about that. We had Charles Woodson uh, on our team. Right, the only guy to that day and hence to win the Heisman as a defensive player. Okay, I gotta tell you, uh, for me as a as a ten year old, that was a tough. <laughs> tough pill to swallow. I'm just going to be real honest when, uh, when Charles Woodson won it. And so, uh, you know, that was, that was a tough blow for a 10 year old Chris Cutcliffe. Hey, listen, I understand. I understand. <laughs> um, I get it. I know that that, uh, football is, 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 uh, that bloodline in the South and, uh, Tennessee runs deep down there. And, um, with all due respect, there's some, there was something about that number two at the University of Michigan that was special. Not that he, that number, he is a special player. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that that guy down in Tennessee wasn't. He absolutely was. Um, I think, you know, coaches and, 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 and players are often, sometimes too often defined because Barkley um, hears from it from Shaq all the time about winning the championship. <laughs> and sometimes they're defined – by at least on the field, by one, did they win a championship? You know, and if you didn't win a championship, did you beat your rival? And I mm-hmm. think those two things, um, Charles played his, some of his biggest games against our rival. Um, and he, I think he had two picks in our national championship game in, at the Rose Bowl. So I will say, so, so, so I just have to say that. Um, that's one. Uh, but if you think about the, the – we had great leadership on that team. We had some personalities. We had talent. Um, and we had really just had enough of people calling us mediocre. See, four seasons prior, we were 8-4, and 8-4, and 8-4, and 8-4. and, four, eight and four. Michigan had just graduated its first class uh, since 69 to not get a ring, to not get a share of a Big Ten championship. So that was the first since Bo Schembechler came, um, and he won his, uh, his that Big Ten championship. And so uh, the cover of Sports Illustrated that year um, had – so Sports Illustrated had Colorado as the number one team in the country. They were coming to Ann Arbor. And the question was, does the M in Michigan stand for mediocre now? All right. I think it was Beano Cook at the time. He said uh, – Michigan's gonna Michigan's gonna have a couple losses uh, this year. Uh, that's clear, and one of them is gonna be down in Happy Valley. So they might as well save some money, just send the band down there, play the victors a couple times, and just come back. The football team doesn't even need to go. Um, we beat that team, I think, thirty-eight or thirty-six to six or nothing, um, and that was Judgment Day in college football. I think we played Penn State, and Florida was playing Florida State. Um, so I say. That team was unique um, based on the timing. Um, our coach uh, was probably on the chopping block because um, he was an interim guy who got the job two years before after beating Ohio State, but still going eight and four because um, beating your rivals will give you another shot, uh, especially in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, we had young guys. Uh, we had a new defensive coordinator who had who was the linebacker coach. I mean, we just – we didn't have a really deep threat. We were an average team offensively. Um, and on paper, we were probably average compared to the teams that I saw at Michigan before that. But it was just chemistry. We were hungry. Uh, and uh, you know, we just 
put it, you know, put it all on the line and swung for the fences. So, Dr. Mays, you can you can tell when you talk how proud you are of your experience there. And we spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about um, how we can make our football program at Oxford uh, what we call a thick institution. You know, something that kids are really proud to have been a part of. And also a program that helps propel, propel them into the next phase of their life with, with a certain level of confidence. So for people who don't know, uh, you know, you talked about maybe down in the South, maybe people don't quite understand this. Can you explain what being a Michigan man means to you and to your former teammates? Yeah, so our strength and conditioning coach, Mike Gittleson, probably helped shape. He was because he was a Bo Schimbeckler hire, and he was there We've had multiple um, strength and conditioning coaches since then, but he still has has the longest tenure since 1969 as a strength and conditioning coach. So he's been responsible for helping shape more Michigan men um, than uh, at least in recent history or since the term has become what we know it to be now. Um, and one of his uh, common statements was take it wide and like take it wide like not only do you not cut the corner but you don't even go close to the corner you take it wide so if we're going to run a lap around this football field take it wide like that in and of itself says what it means to be a michigan man Cutting the corner isn't even, uh, you know, it, is, it, it isn't even thought of, let alone coming close to cut a corner. So when you take it wide, you go to extra step, all right? At Michigan, so another one of his, one of his sayings was, um, your weight is your attitude. If you're overweight, it says the wrong thing. If you're underweight, it says the wrong thing about you and your attitude. It means you have a bad attitude. Um, and so... It, it, and, 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 and in a game like football, there was always sort of this range per position that you were supposed to be in. And so if a guy was under that, if he, was, he wasn't taking it seriously enough, um, you know, there could always be a guy had an injury or something like that. But, or if a guy was well over his weight, he wasn't taking it seriously enough. And so to be a Michigan man, it was to be, it, it was, to be a Michigan man meant excellence, right? You won. You played the game. You played the game face up. Uh, you know, we, we, we feared no team. We feared no stadium. We feared no coach. We feared no man. Like, the idea that we would play this game, we would play it face up. We would line up across from you, and down after down, down after down, down after down, we're going to hit you in the mouth, all right? And so attrition will set in, but it won't set in on our side of the line of scrimmage. And that was – you, you play you play the game tough, but you play it, you know, with with, with honor and, and and with dignity. Um, you take it wide. Uh, you, know, you go the extra mile. Um, and if you you know, and, and it's it's not the critic who counts is is one of our you know um, one of the quotes from uh, Roosevelt that's often uh, stated. Um, and the idea, you know, if you fail. You know, as long as you do so valiantly, you know, you will never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat, you know. So to be, and, and that's me attempting to um, 
sum up what was passed down to me, all right, from other guys who had played before me. You know, I was told things like, hey, don't worry about uh, the Ohio State game. It takes care of itself. Okay. We, all right. And it does, right? We don't, you know, we, you know, don't worry about that. Just win. We don't care what the score is. Just win the game, all right? Um, and then, you know, go put your letterman on and enjoy yourself. So it, it's, it's, it's being a Michigan man is a lot of things, but a couple words, class, character, uh, and winners. We're way more alert than we were 30 minutes ago. And I was watching, you know, you're doing the quick nods, <laughs> listening to you. You know, I think we were ready. So that was perfect. Uh, we're going to finish with a little rapid-fire closing round. That's okay. what we'll, we'll close our time with. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and all I want you to say is the first thing that comes to mind. So quick answers. Okay. okay. All right, what was the last book you read? The Way of the Superior Man. Who is the toughest player on the 97 Michigan team? Oh, that's a tough one, Glenn Steele. Which is a better gig? Johns Hopkins professor or SEC assistant football coach? Johns Hopkins professor slash defensive line coach, which is what I was. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome job. If they paid what they paid in the SEC, that is a position I probably would stay at for the next 20 years. <laughs> Great answer. Great answer. All right. Most impressive high school football program you've seen uh, since moving to Arkansas? Uh, North Little Rock. Finish this sentence. Jim Harbaugh will beat Ohio State by the year. By the year that in the fourth quarter, when time runs out, Michigan has more points than Ohio State. <laughs> you've been on. You've been on too many podcasts. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Last one, we always we always ask this one. What's the best place to eat uh, where you live in Fayetteville right now? Oh, man. So there are a lot of places, and I will have to be honest with you, going to get the pizza at Whole Foods, uh, the two for 18 is still a great deal. And then I'll throw in some Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, you know, uh, 20 wings to go with it, and, man, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Whole Foods and B-dubs. <laughs> hey, that is college. That is that is ritual college football food that around is. my house. That right. is. I like it. I like it. Doc, this was perfect, man. Thank you so much for coming on this. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to talk football. You know, I don't get to switch out of you know out of the academy zone. This this I don't know if you know Chris, but I was telling Hunter this is my last year was my first year not being in football at all because um, I coached um, high school the year before. And then the year before that, I was at Central Michigan uh, with Bonamago. Uh, and then uh, three years before that, I was uh, at Hopkins coaching D-line. So, you know, it's been well, a there's, – they, There's something special about being a part of a team, you know. And, uh, man, that's – you're right. That, that would be an adjustment to, to lose just that, that camaraderie that you have being a part of a team. Yeah, yep. and so my son, he's 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 uh, playing, and I and I, you know, I've talked to the coaches, and I just, but but I said to him, I said, you know what, I said, uh, if you all need anything, let me know. But I'm gonna, you know, 
at least this first season, I'm going to let him just kind of figure it out, you know, not to be, you know, the, the, the overbearing father who's, you know, trying to coach everybody. I just said, all right, son. But I do coach him when he gets home. You know, <laughs> so, so that, you know, we're in our front yard, and I, and I know people are like, man, what the hell are they doing? But, <laughs> so I do get a little bit of it uh, that way. So, But this is That's great, awesome. so I appreciate you guys. Man, this has been a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Coach and Doc podcast. Uh, We know there are a lot of podcasts out there, so we're grateful that you chose ours. If you'd like to learn more about the work that we do, please visit our website. It is at coachandoc.com. Thanks again.